evidence and answers. Do recent discoveries in science point to an intelligent creator? If so, how do we know that this creator is the God of the Bible? At the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference held in Hawaii, Dr. Hugh Ross presented five major scientific discoveries that prove the God of the Bible exists. How detailed are these scientific discoveries? You are tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we begin with the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. Pat hosts this conference each year and brings out Christian scientists and speakers from across the country. Dr. Hugh Ross began this conference with a topic about cosmic reasons for God. Now, here's our host, Pat. I'm Pat Zucran. I'm the founder and the executive director of Evidence and Answers. We are a Christian apologetics ministry based right here in Hawaii. We are designed to proclaim the gospel by presenting the compelling evidence for Christ to defend the gospel from the challenges that come upon it and to equip Christians to engage their culture and world for Christ. And we've been doing our apologetics conference for 15 years. Dr. Howe is back there. Dr. Howe is also going to be one of our speakers on some very important subjects. I know that those of you in, at the university face a lot of challenges when it comes to the relationship between science and the scriptures, science and your Christian faith, and that's what these guys are going to be addressing. So I want to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Hugh Ross. He is the senior scholar and founder of Reasons to Believe. This is a great organization, a great resource for many of you here at the university here. So it's an organization dedicated to communicating the compatibility of science and Christian faith. While in college, Hugh committed his life to Christ after his study of cosmology and convinced him of the existence of a creator, specifically the God of the Bible. So he holds degrees in physics from the University of British Columbia, a PhD in astronomy from the University of Toronto, and after five years of teaching on the Caltech faculty, he transitioned to full-time ministry and still serves on the pastoral team at Christ Church Sierra Madre. Many of you are familiar with his many writings, uh, some of his prominent books, The Creator and the Cosmos, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, The Improbable Planet, and his latest book, Design to the core, all right? So we want to welcome with us Dr. Hugh Ross. Well, as you heard, I was born, raised, and educated in Canada. I was not raised in a Christian home. In fact, I didn't really get to meet Christians until I showed up at Caltech to do postdoctoral research. But it was astronomy that brought me to faith in Christ. And uh, I'm going to be basically giving you a review of some of the key scientific evidences that persuaded me to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm the founder of Reasons to Believe, and you can contact us through a variety of social media outlets that we have. And what I'm going to share with you is what I refer to as the big five. These are the five most significant categories of scientific evidences that established that not only must a God exist, but it's the God of the Bible. So first, the origin of the universe. And it was actually my discovering that the universe had a beginning when I was 16 years of age that led me on a quest to see if whether or not who was the one that brought the universe into existence. 
Number two would be the fine-tuning or the design of the universe, earth, and life uh, so that not only could billions of humans exist, but billions of humans can be redeemed from their sin and evil. And number three, Genesis creation. You know, as I've spoken around the world, what I've discovered is the number one reason why skeptics reject the Christian faith is they think that science contradicts 30 chapters of Genesis. And number four is the origin of life. And number five is human exceptionalism. That's a core feature of the Christian faith that we human beings alone amongst all life that God has created are created in the image of God. That we don't differ just in degree with the other animals on planet Earth. We differ fundamentally in kind. Now, I won't have time tonight to go through all of these, but I'll get through at least the first three. But we're going to have you know, a good amount of time for Q&A. And by the way, in the Q&A time, you can ask me any question. It doesn't have to be the topics we've discussed this evening. But I want to begin with what persuaded me. I was studying astronomy. I've been studying astronomy since I was seven. But when I was 16, this is when physicists in different countries were beginning to develop the first of the space-time theorems. And today we have 30 of those space-time theorems. And my favorite one is this one here, uh, titled Inflationary Space-Times Are Not Past Incomplete. You know, I'm married to an English professor, and I don't know where they come up with these titles. They really need to do better than that. But however, there's not that many words in this paper. It's mainly equations. By the way, you've got to get this paper. It's just incredibly fascinating reading. And the equations are gorgeous. So I do check it out. But it ends with a paragraph that everyone can understand, which states the following. Any universe that expands. Now, to be fair, uh, my peers have found theorems, space-time theorems, that don't require a God to exist. But these are theorems that do not permit the existence of physical life. Only a universe that expands on average throughout its history permits the existence of physical life. And Arvin Borde, Alexander Vlinken, and Alan Guth, uh, they developed this theorem, which states that any universe that expands on average has a space-time beginning, which implies that a causal agent outside of space and time who creates our universe of space, time, matter, and energy. Now, that struck me in my late teenage years because as I went through the different religions of the world, I realized the Bible stood alone in saying that the beginning of the universe includes the beginning of space and time itself. And Alexander Vilenkin, by the way, none of these three authors are believers, but Alexander Vilenkin, a year and a half after this paper was published, uh, wrote a book, and it's lay accessible, and what he wrote in this book is the following. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. And what is that problem? Proof of a space-time beginning implies a causal agent beyond space and time who creates our universe of space-time matter and energy. And in my library, I actually have a number of books written by the world's leading atheist uh, physicists. But the latest books are now saying, we definitely don't believe in God, but we do recognize that there must be a causal agent beyond space and time that created everything. Last time I checked, that's a pretty good definition of God. <laughs> so, and you know, even someone like Lawrence Krauss has said in his books, we cannot take deism off the scientific table. And it's because of the force 
of these space-time theorems. So within just a few minutes here, we've established a transcendent God must exist. We cannot eliminate the possibility of existence of God, but the real question is this. Okay, there's a causal agent beyond space and time, but is God a personal being? And did God design the universe and the earth so that billions of humans can exist? Moreover, so that billions of humans can be redeemed from their sin and evil. Now, if you look at church history, what you discover is that for the past 2,000 years, the go-to scientific argument has been the design argument. And I think the reason why uh, Christian apologists have so consistently gone to the design argument the design argument establishes that God must be a personal being, not just a transcendent being. So, for example, I could share with you, I'll be doing this later on uh, this uh, weekend, I'll be sharing with you this tomorrow. One of the design features of the universe shows that the level of design is quadrillions of quadrillions and go on a few more quadrillions of times uh, greater than the very best fine-tuning design that we human beings are capable of achieving. Which implies that this causal agent must be those quadrillions of quadrillions of quadrillions of times more intelligent, more knowledgeable, more creative, more powerful, more caring than we human beings. We really are talking of personal God. But if you look at the book of Job and Psalms, you'll find several chapters that make the point, the more we learn about nature, the more evidence we will find for the supernatural handiwork of God. And so this is something we've been demonstrating at Reasons to Believe ever since 1991. And what we did beginning in 1991 is we went through the scientific literature and collected from that search all the different features of the universe where we see a level of design that's greater than the best that we human beings can achieve. And back in 1991, we were able to determine 17 different features of the universe and the laws of physics that showed this degree of fine-tuning greater than anything we human beings can achieve. And what this table basically shows you is how that evidence has accumulated since 1991, where today over 200 distinct features of the universe and the laws of physics must be fine-tuned. So the physical life, we're not just talking human life, any kind of physical life would exist. Now, if you want to see the documentation for this and all the scientific papers that support this, go to reasons.org slash fine-tuning. That will pop up for you a free 300-page compendium where we document these evidences and all the scientific papers uh, that support that. And you can actually check out the scientific papers for yourself. Or you can get a book by Paul Davies. He's an agnostic astrophysicist who wrote the book, The Cosmic Blueprint, but this is what he says on the second to last page of that book. The impression of design is overwhelming. Everywhere we look in the universe, we see this overwhelming evidence for fine-tuned design at a level far greater than what human beings can achieve. And I've debated a number of atheist physicists over the last few decades, and when this comes up, they say, well, yeah, the universe has a sample size of only one. Uh, how can you make a statistical argument where you can only look at one universe. And this is the problem. I've got 50 books in my office um, where astronomers and physicists write about what they call the anthropic principle. All but two of those books have been written by unbelievers, and they all concede the point of Paul Davies. 
the evidence for design is overwhelming. But what I notice about the 48 books, they stop at the level of the universe. And if you do that, you can keep that God at arm's length. I mean, the universe is big, right? Two trillion galaxies out there. So, but we can look at the fine tuning, not just at the level of the universe, but at all different cosmic size scales, which is what I've done in my book, The Improbable Planet and Design to the Core. And basically what we demonstrate is, we not only see this extraordinary fine-tuned design at the level of the universe as a whole, we also see it at the super galaxy cluster. That's a cluster of clusters of galaxies. We live in the only one that has the characteristics that permits the existence of life. Tens of thousands of super galaxy clusters, ours sticks out like a sore thumb. And we live in a unique cluster of galaxies. There's no other cluster of galaxies like our own. We live in a just-right galaxy. I don't know how many of you have ever seen those Star Wars movies, a galaxy far, far away. We've looked at galaxies far, far away. None of them are candidates. In my book, I show you the 12 that come the closest to matching our Milky Way galaxy. But ours alone has the 200 fine-tuned design characteristics that permits the existence of life and advanced life in particular. And for 65 years, my peers have been scouring our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy, looking for a star sufficiently like our star, the sun, that it could be a candidate to have a planet orbiting it on which advanced life is possible. We have found many stars that are twins of one another. We've yet to find a twin of the sun. In fact, what I show in my book, Design to the Core, is the star that places second to the sun and luminosity stability. That star is five times more unstable than our star of the sun. And it's because of the extraordinary luminosity stability of our sun that we can even have this event here tonight. Uh, human existence simply wouldn't be possible otherwise. And if you were to go to the website and look up exoplanet catalog, you'll discover that more than 5,300 planets have been discovered outside of our solar system. The first ones were discovered in 1995. And I remember my peers saying back then, we're going to find hundreds of planets just like the planets in our solar system. Many planets just like Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Mars. Well, to this date, we've yet to find a single planet that's like any of the planets in our solar system. And that's led to the discovery every one of the eight planets in our solar system must be exquisitely fine-tuned to make advanced life possible here on Earth. So when the next November comes around and you want to celebrate Thanksgiving, I pray that you'll be thanking God for Uranus and Neptune and Mars and Venus and Mercury because all of them must be exactly the way they are for life to exist. And we need the Earth and the Moon to be exactly the way they are. In fact, one of the latest discoveries I write about in Design to the Core is that the only way you can have life on a planet is if you've got two rocky planets that smash into one another, obliterating all the light elements on the, that uh, planet and hitting with just the right velocity at just the right angle to just the right depth of ocean. First started off with an ocean three or 4,000 kilometers deep. It absorbed the collision. But what it did is it made for a bigger Earth, a denser Earth, and it led to the formation of the moon. And because of that collision event, both of them had a hot origin which meant both of them had a strong magnetic field early in the history of the solar system. 
and I took the combination of those two magnetic fields and the two bodies were close enough together that the magnetic fields coupled and if it wasn't for that, the radiation of the early sun uh, would have sputtered away all of Earth's water and all of Earth's atmosphere. And unless you've got two planets colliding at just the right time, at just the right orbit from its host star, of just the right mass and composition, you will not have a planet with water uh, or an atmosphere. And so that's the latest habitability requirement uh, that's been discovered. But in the case of the moon, we've identified 22 distinct features of the moon that must be fine-tuned for advanced light to be possible here on Earth. So one of the things we've done at Reasons to Believe since 1995 is actually to go through these characteristics of our galaxy and our planetary system and say how many attributes must be exquisitely fine-tuned and we've actually gone to the trouble of calculating what is the probability that we would find a body anywhere in the entire universe that would have the necessary characteristics for life and by the way this is to get microbes we're not talking human beings just to get microbes on a planet what is the probability if there is no supernatural intervention so just say it's all naturalistic and that probability back in 1995 was less than one chance in 10 to the 31st power 2006 less than one chance in 10 to the 556th power you want to know where it is now it's less than one chance in 10 to the 1000th power now Numbers like that tend to be mind-boggling for people who haven't taken advanced mathematics, so I'll try to break that down for you. In California, we have this very lucrative lottery where you can win literally a half billion dollars, uh, but the odds of you winning are not very good. Well, to put this in context, one chance in 10 to the 1,000th power is a probability that you would win the California lottery 150 consecutive times where you buy just one ticket each time. Or as a mathematician friend of mine told me, it's indistinguishable from winning the California lottery 150 consecutive times where you don't buy any tickets at all. <laughs> now this has caught the attention of a number of physicists who've dug deeper than just the scale of the universe. One is Freeman Dyson, and he wrote in his book, uh, Disturbing the Universe. The more I examine the universe, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, must have known we were coming. Now, what he's referring to is this. We astronomers have no access to the present. My wife is sitting here. I keep telling her, look, I'm an astronomer. I can't be held accountable for the present. All my data comes from the past. So, for example, when we look at the sun, we don't see it as it is now. We see it as it was eight minutes ago because it took light that long uh, to reach our telescopes. And the farther away we look, the farther back in time we see. Now, one of the remarkable fine-tuned characteristics, we humans are living at the only time in the history of the universe and living in the only location within the universe where it's possible for astronomers to look far away and look all the way back to the cosmic creation event. We literally can directly observe the universe being created. Now, I've been accused of exaggerating, so it's not that we can get exactly to time equals zero, but I can show you images of what the universe looks like when the universe was 100 billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. And it's our capacity to directly observe the cosmic creation event, 
which gives us some of the most rigorous, compelling scientific evidence that a God beyond space and time must have designed the universe for existence. Hey, you want to read more about this? You can get my book, The Crater in the Cosmos, 4th edition. You go to reasons.org slash Ross, you can get a free chapter. You don't have to buy the book, you can get a free chapter. And chapter 15 is a chapter we're giving away, which basically reviews all this fine-tuned design evidence and gives you the citations to the papers. And by the way, we give you links so you can go directly to the papers. And this is my latest book, Design to the Core. You can also get a free chapter of that book. And what I do in this book is basically show you how every component of the universe and every event in the history of the universe our galaxy, our cluster of galaxies, our planetary system, every component, every event must be fine-tuned to make possible the redemption of billions of human beings from their sin and evil. Okay, I'm going to transition to what is the biggest point of objection. Now, I've debated Michael Shermer, the ex executive director of the Skeptic Society, four times on four different public university campuses. And uh, you know, the debates are always about scientific evidence for God. Does the cosmos really reveal God? But it doesn't matter what the debate title is. What Michael Shermer does when he gets his chance to speak, he goes straight to Genesis, he ignores everything I've said, ignores the universe, ignores the planetary system. He goes straight to Genesis because he believes the early chapters of Genesis are the Achilles heel of the Christian faith. He really views those early chapters as a killer of Christianity. My experience is different. It was those early chapters of Genesis that were a huge factor in my coming to faith in Christ. And what I notice in my debates with Michael Shermer is that he begins with the wrong point of view. And it was Galileo who said the biggest mistake you can make in Bible interpretation is to get the wrong viewpoint. And what we notice in Genesis chapter 1, it begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Michael always brings up the point, the Bible gets it wrong in the very first sentence. Because we know the universe was created before the earth was created. I find it amusing he uses the word create. Okay. <laughs> but what he doesn't realize is there's no word for universe in biblical Hebrew. Instead, it uses this phrase, shamayen arrest with the definite articles. You'll see that used 13 times in the Old Testament. And it always refers to the totality of physical reality. So it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It means in the beginning, God created the universe of matter, energy, space, and time. And you see this portrayed in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.3, the universe that we can detect was made from that which we cannot detect. But we can detect matter, energy, space, and time. But when you move to Genesis 1-2, it changes the point of view from the universe to the surface of the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, which means we're to interpret the six days of creation from the point of view, the frame of reference of an observer on the surface of earth's waters, below the clouds, not above the clouds. Now again, I've met many scientists who think Genesis teaches scientific nonsense. That's because they think that God is telling us a story from above the clouds. And I agree with them. If that's the point of view, it's all scientific nonsense. Genesis 1-2, hovering over the surface of the waters. 
So remember nothing else about Genesis 1 that I'm going to be sharing with you tonight. Remember the point of view for the six creation days is the surface of Earth's ocean. Genesis 1-2 also gives you the initial conditions. It tells you water covers the whole surface of the earth. It's dark on the surface of the waters, and earth is empty of life and unfit for life. Now, the darkness is affirmed by the parallel account in the book of Job. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Yeah.